It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. What is a woman? Why is this all of a sudden a confusing question to some people? Why are genders being redefined in real time? Why is this happening all of a sudden? People who question the suddenness with which this has happened and is happening are told they are bigoted and they're labeled as domestic terrorists. No, seriously, they really are. To put things in perspective, you first got to know where we started with this, where these ideas come from and where this is all going. You must go to first principles. Professor Nancy Piercy has looked at these issues at their most fundamental level. Her book, Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality, answers these questions. I urge you to get a hold of it. It's available everywhere. Her other books are Legion, and she is translated in 17 different languages. She is a woman who is a former agnostic. Then she became a Christian apologist and is a wonderful voice in the Christian leadership of this country. But her work is appreciated by secular professors as well and others. Please enjoy the first of two parts of my conversation with Professor Nancy Piercy. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. What is happening to our country and why are we sexualizing children in the name of equity? Confusion reigns as people who hold no views based on objective truth subject themselves and their children to the whims of the latest woke fads. Why are adults having difficulty discerning between this depravity and what is truth? Parents who call it out are investigated or called domestic terrorists or worse. An inmate who claims to be a woman is moved to a men's prison after impregnating two real women with wombs. And people are confused about whom to feel sorry for. Trans activists try to cancel Dave Chappelle and then succeed in chastening Macy Gray after she says women are women and men are not women. The person who a short time ago was known as a man is now up for woman of the year. Entire groups of people think pedophiles rule the positions of power. Parents whoop as their children are taught to walk the catwalk by drag queens. Explicit sex acts are taught in school as a way to, I don't know, groom victims. Ghislaine Maxwell goes to prison for selling children into sex slavery, and the men who bought them are not. Professor Nancy Piercy has looked at these issues at their most fundamental level. In her book, Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality, she gets to a lot of the truth of the matter, in fact, the fundamental truth of the matter, and her earlier books, The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, Finding Truth, and the two ECPA Gold Medallion Award winners, How Now Shall We Live?, which she co-authored with Harold Fickett and Chuck Colson, and Total Truth. Her books have been translated into 17 languages. She is professor and scholar-in-residence at Houston Baptist University, and she's a former agnostic. 
She has spoken at universities such as Princeton, Stanford, USC, and Dartmouth. She has been quoted in The New Yorker, Newsweek, highlighted as one of the five top women apologists by Christianity Today, and hailed in The Economist as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. And I've had the pleasure of interviewing her before for radio and for PJ Media. And today, she makes her debut on the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. And welcome, Professor Nancy Piercy. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, very glad to have you and be able to delve into some of these questions. A lot of people are confused. You answer a lot of the questions in Love Thy Body, and I think listeners need to get an overview of your thesis in Love Thy Body. What is it about? Oh, well, the title refers to the fact that most of the secular, liberal ethics that we encounter today on all of the cutting-edge issues that you just mentioned, that was a great introduction. You covered them all. Um they all rest on an ideology that denigrates the body. And that's kind of surprising to a lot of people because they kind of assume that if you're a secular person and you don't think there's a God and you don't think there's any spiritual realm at all, that you therefore have a high view of the material world, right? If you think matter is all it is, mm -hmm. you would expect them to think that uh, the material body is a good thing. But in fact, well, let's take the most obvious one. You mentioned the transgender inmate in a prison. Let's talk about transgenderism. Um, it's very obvious there because transgender activists say explicitly that your body has nothing to do with your identity, that your body has uh, is not part of your authentic self. Uh, uh, as you know, Victoria, I like to look at what the uh, what the academics say, because what academics say is what ultimately filters down to ordinary people. And there is a book put out by a Princeton University professor. I think it's the first academic book defending transgenderism. And to my great surprise, her main, her main message was your, your body is not part of who you are. And let me give you an exact quote. She says, the physical body tells us nothing. It has no meaning at all. So this is the no meaning at all. So this is the message that's being directed to very young children now, all the way down to kindergarten with drag queen, uh, drag queen story hour and so on. Young children are basically being told your body is meaningless. And no wonder so many of them end up concluding that they are meaningless. The, our body is an important part of our identity. And so if our body, they are taught that their body means nothing, that it is meaningless, it is natural to conclude that their life is meaningless, that they themselves are meaningless. And it's not surprising that uh, the, the Heritage Foundation put out a study finding that in the uh, states, the states that have official policies that children can be introduced to uh, puberty blockers, opposite sex hormones, and surgery without parental notification uh. or permission have higher levels of suicide among young people than states that do not allow that without uh, parental permission. So it is very clear that young people who are indoctrinated into the transgender ideology are actually being harmed by it. And are, are the ones who are the they are the ones committing suicide, right? We're always told, oh, you must accept transgender people because they're they're a vulnerable population and they're likely to commit suicide if they're not affirmed. It turns out it's the opposite. They are actually more likely to commit suicide if they are affirmed 
and I don't like the word affirm, that sounds too positive. <laughs> if they are told that their body is meaningless and it's not part of their authentic self, they are more likely to end up in dis despair and destructive in a destructive mindset. I like the fact that the trans activist or the professor from Berkeley, I think it was, who told Senator Josh Hawley not too long ago that that he his questions about women being women and men being men were actually committing an act of violence against trans people. Do you see that? Yeah. Oh, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Well, and, and that's that is the language that's used so often. Right. If you question it all, you mentioned you mentioned poor Macy Gray. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the sad part about that was watching the destruction of a human being. You know, watch watching someone who had given her honest, sincere view that trans trans people, trans men are, are not men, trans women are not women. And then she was just crushed by the the opposition. But, but you're right. People who, <laughs> Holly was good. Holly was good. He said, you mean if I even ask a question about whether transgender people, <laughs> transgender women, which who are, of course, biological males, if I even ask a question about whether biological males can be pregnant, that's considered transphobic. And that's where the language, the language is, is pushing us into accepting an ideology. Mm -hmm. You know, the language about that transgender person, uh, inmate in New Jersey, I read it. And did you know, did you notice that virtually all the news articles said she? Yes. Oh, that's an AP all style them, book now. Yes, they all said she, exactly. And so uh, George Orwell was right. If they change the language, they win the war. So we need to fight back, first of all, on the level of language that a person who's biologically male is still male. It's not mm -hmm. woman of the year. You know, You're out. Trans is still male. So this this is where I think we're uh, sort of one of the cutting edge issues right now is just being able to even keep the language honest. <laughs> That is so true. I wonder, since we've heard so much about trans things recently, is this a social contagion? Oh, very much so. Do you know there was, um, I believe it was the first, well, I know it was the first one. I don't know if any, any others have been done. But the first study of transgender kids was done by a woman named Lisa Littman. She's a professor at Brown University. And she did a study of young girls it was all girls because you know the trans the trans phenomenon is happening now primarily among young girls i mean historically when it was called transsexualism it was primarily a male phenomenon and it also tended to start very young true gender dysphoria tends to show up in very young children so this is a very new phenomenon that young girls are suddenly discovering in their adolescence or teen years that they really identify with the opposite sex. Uh, girls who showed no, you know, no indication of being uncomfortable with being girls when they were young. And so a new, a new word has been coined to describe this phenomenon. It's being called rapid onset gender dysphoria. Oh, wow. Because it's happening so suddenly, right, in the teen years. And so there was a study done, like I said, by Brown University, um, and what what this study found was that 63% of the girls who come out with rapid onset gender dysphoria had already been diagnosed 
with some previous mental health issue, Mm. such as autism, anxiety, depression, ADHD, uh, OCD, manic depressive, (laughs) etc. And I stress the word diagnosed because most teenagers have some anxiety and depression, but these were young girls whose issues were so severe that their parents had actually taken to taken them to a counselor and then been diagnosed. So 63% of these young girls had been diagnosed with a previous condition. So what this means is these are very troubled teens to start with. And that's one reason it is so destructive and so harmful that the entire culture is now pressuring them to transition, to go on the puberty blockers, cross sex hormones, to get the mastectomy and so on. Because these are troubled kids to start with. And if you read the stories by the detransitioners, you have to kind of uh, search them out mm-hmm. <laughs> because they're, they're kind of they're being suppressed. You have to find the ways to, to discover the detransitioners, but they're coming out. And so many of them are saying, one of them was on Tucker Carlson recently. You probably saw her. Mm-hmm. Um, she, many of them will say, I had severe psychological issues uh, and and nobody asked me about them. You know, I went in for, for counseling and they immediately said, if you feel uncomfortable in your body, you are trans. Here's where you can get hormones. You, you know, yeah. a 30 minute, a 30 minute interview. Right. And they'll put on puberty blockers, cross sex hormones and so on. So th- there's no recognition that many of these young women, especially the young women, um, are very troubled already. And, and that also gives us kind of a, a, two, a two-pronged approach. On the one hand, um, there's, there's the political approach where we really need to be fighting for good laws, like, like Governor DeSantis in Florida, who, who recently, um, as you know, uh, said we cannot teach gender identity as sexual orientation in grades K through three. Okay, very young children don't need this. All right. So on the one hand, there's the political side. On the other hand, there's the personal side. You know, people we know, people in our family, um, people in our church, people in our kids' school that we may know. Um, we have to realize there's a very troubled kids and they need a lot of love instead of being just you know immediately transitioned you know in a very impersonal fast tracked way mm-hmm. um, they, they need a lot of care and and a lot of support because they they're very fragile if you talk to if you talk to um, uh, teachers who have these kids in their classroom that's a word that you will often hear these are very fragile kids. Oh, yeah. And that's what we need to be aware of. So on a personal level, when we have uh, young kids who are coming out as trans within our own personal circles. You know, uh, one of the things that I've noticed is uh, recently there's been a uh, trans activism for kids who are on spectrum. You just mentioned that uh, with respect to, you know, a lot of kids already have problems. And and I just thought, oh, my gosh, you know, trans, you know, rights for people on spectrum. And I, I just like we're now we're just like looking we're looking for people to victimize now, I, I think. I mean, it sort of comes off that way. Now, the. We are not just witnessing a social contagion, but we've seen in institutions how these things are essentially fads. And you talk about in Love Thy Body that there is a difference between 
a person's body, as you've mentioned, and their ability to be a person, um, at least designated under law, and how we've denigrated that uh, the wholeness of the human to in in service to a political cause. And you you mentioned in a previous interview with me all of the the big Supreme Court decisions which have done that very thing. So you must have been heartened by the Dobbs decision, but the other problems still persist. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because um, one, the theme of Love Thy Body is all of these different issues ultimately rest on your view of the body. And this is something that people have a little bit of a difficult time getting their minds around. But you talked about the Dobbs decision. Um, many people don't realize that professional bioethicists argue explicitly that the fetus is human from conception. Ordinary people don't all know that, right? Because yeah. if you talk to your neighbor, you know, they may still be arguing whether the fetus is human or not. But professional bioethicists all know that the fetus is human from conception, from fertilization. Um, and the science, you know, the science is just too strong to deny it, the genetics, the DNA. And so what they will argue is, okay, the fetus is human, but it's not a person until some time later, uh, which is defined in terms of certain mental abilities, a certain level of cognitive functioning, self-awareness, and so on. And only after it becomes a person is it doesn't have any sort of moral standing. It doesn't mm-hmm. have any sort of uh, legal protection. Of course, the problem with that is that if you separate being human from being biologically human, you know, physiologically human, genetically human, then what does it mean to be a person? How do you, what do you base it on? Right. Well, it becomes totally arbitrary. It's totally subjective. And even among professional bioethicists, you find that they all draw the line in a different place because they, they are, they all decide, well, different mental abilities, different functioning is what qualifies us as a person. And again, I want to call your attention to the fact that this has been in the professional world since uh, I think the most uh, influential bioethicist was Peter Singer, yeah. who's now at Princeton. He wrote a book called Practical Ethics back in 1979, and it's been used extensively, extensively throughout the universities across the nation. And he was the first person to really make that strong argument the fetus is human. I have my uh-huh. students read it, by the way. Uh-huh. And they're reading it, and he's arguing that, of course, the fetus is human. And he argues against all the normal pro-choice, pro- pro-abortion arguments. And my students are all puzzled at first, like, what? This guy's on our side. Uh-huh. Because he's argued so strongly that, of course, the fetus is human. And all the arguments against that are wrong. And then suddenly he switches and said, but, it, but it's not a person. And that is the argument that has been circulating on the academic level since 1979. So what you're seeing then is if a fetus can be human at one point, but not a person until some time later, then clearly what he's saying is merely being human is not enough for moral status, for legal rights. So it undermines our whole notion of human rights. It says being human is not enough for human rights. 
And that's the issue that is that makes abortion so dangerous is that it has all these implications for human rights across the board, far beyond abortion. You know, one of the things I appreciated in your book, Love Thy Body, was the fact that you go back in time and talk about how incredibly revolutionary the Bible was or the scripture was at that time and and uh, just basically wrecking the previous <clears throat> the way of thinking about children and women, all of a sudden, here was Jesus say, let the children come to me, and and helping the children, and mothers and fathers coming together, and women honoring her husband, and a husband had to honor a woman. This was revolutionary. They were not doing that. You talk about that, and I just, would you please explain a little bit about how incredible that was, and how it just sort of turned on its head, that the ways in which we were treating children and women before? Yes, I'm so glad you asked that because that's another thing that we just don't realize how much our heritage is shaped by Christianity. Back in the ancient Roman, Greek and Roman times, you know, which is when the early church was born, uh, the Romans had no uh, no value. They put no value on children. Um, children were considered to be, you know, small, weak, worthless. And if they were at all deformed, of course, they were put out to, uh, they were either killed or they were exposed, which means they were put outside to be killed by the elements or the wild animals. In fact, uh, Cicero and uh, Plato and Aristotle all recommended infanticide as official state policy. Wow. And of course, girls were the ones who were killed most likely because it was it was very rare for a Roman family to have more than one daughter because women were so devalued that okay they would put up with one daughter but not anymore. Um, and in addition, what most people don't realize is that a it is a historical truth that a culture that devalues children devalues women. Because if you think children aren't worth bothering about, then you think there's something wrong with women, that women do care about mm-hmm. their children. And one historian that, that writes about these topics put it, puts it this way. In Roman times, women were considered, because they tended to have greater emotional attachment to their children, that was considered a sign of weakness and vulgarity on their part. That's a direct quote. Mm. <laughs> Attachment to children was considered a weakness and vulgarity on the part of women. And of course, women's in pre-modern times, an awful lot of their life was spent either being pregnant <laughs> or nursing or carrying children, you know, babes in arms or a babe on the sling on the back, mm-hmm. you know, and often all three at once, right? So women, an awful lot of their time was spent caring for children. Uh, whereas today, you know, what you're, you're done, you have your two kids and you're done within 10 years or whatever. Back then, most of your adult life was spent caring for children. And so again, if you devalue children, that tends to devalue women who spend a lot of time raising children. So, the two often go together, and today we often think, uh, we, what we hear people say is that to be against abortion is to be anti-women. Well, in the early church, people understood very well to be against abortion was to be pro-women, because what it said is we value the contribution that bringing women bring. I mean, women as humans, you know, bring a lot, but women, as women, the main contribution 
their their contribution to society is that they're the ones who bring new life. They're the ones mm-hmm. who give us babies, you know, the next generation. And so, if the, when the Bible said abortion is wrong, infanticide is wrong, when the early church taught that, women flocked to the early church. From the beginning, there have been more women than men in the Christian church ever since the early church. Why? Because they knew that the church, that Christianity valued women. Women had a much higher status and value in the Christian church than they had in the surrounding Greco-Roman culture. And what is a woman? Has the trans movement begun to erase them? Oh, very much so. Don't you agree? Yeah. The very notion that we can't say the word woman anymore. What was it the other day I saw a, uh, yes, it was yesterday. There was a, a news, a news article on women capable of, uh, excuse me, people. <laughs> they did not use the word women. Right. People care, capable of having, of, of menstruating regularly. Did you see that? It was about yes. how the, vac- the vaccine. Yeah, the, the vaccine is affecting menstrual cycles. And it didn't say women. It said people capable of menstrual cycles. <laughs> so that's what, when people say, what do you mean erasure? Well, when you can't even use the word anymore, isn't that erasure? Of course it is. Wow. So I, I think the very notion that we can't use the word women anymore. Um, in, so in, in the, um, the, the hearing that you mentioned with Senator Hawley, mm-hmm was the same thing, you know, the, the women capable of having children or something. Uh, no, I'm sorry, persons cap- capable of persons capable of having a, a pregnancy is how she put it. People oh, capable boy. of pregnancy. <laughs> um, you know, yes. And so that is erasure. If you can't use if you cannot you cannot protect legally a category of people if you cannot identify that category. That's actually mm-hmm. part of civil rights law. Uh, you, it turns out that, um, for example, um, there have been a lot of groups who've sought some kind of civil rights status, and the, and many of them have been rejected because if you can't, if you, you know, if you change, if if a category changes over time, it cannot be protected legally. Or if you cannot, um, I'll tell you where this came up. This is so interesting. It's it's so relevant. There's a researcher who's a lesbian. Her name is Lisa Diamond. And she is the one who gave us the, the, the word fluid. When people say sexuality is fluid, uh, mm-hmm. she's actually the one who gave us that term because she... Thanks, Lisa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, and you can watch her. It's a very good, uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting lecture that she gave at Cornell University. So if you just Google Lisa Diamond Cornell, you'll find it. But um, what she found is that most non-heterosexual people are not exclusively homosexual. Most of them change. 80%, 80% of people who come out as homosexual change their sexual identity label at least once to heterosexual or bisexual or queer or whatever. 80% of homosexuals. Well, that does not sound like a trait that's biologically determined. Right. We, um, the There was a recent opinion poll, and it was uh, it found that the, the, a lot more people are uh, queer, gender, dysphoric, or I don't even know what to say about that, but they are not what they were born as. 
And it turns out that most of the people identifying as another kind of person who experiences sex in a different way were people, were women who just wanted to show some uh, affinity with people who are in these groups. They weren't necessarily people who were lesbians or gay or transgender or anything else. They were just women who just wanted to, you know, give them an attagirl or an attaboy. And it was just the weirdest thing. It's like, really? Most of the people were just, uh, you know, because you'd seen numbers where they doubled or something on the order of doubling or tripling or quadrupling the number of so-called transgender people. And and most of it was just women saying, oh, yeah, you know, I, I go along with that. That's fine. And and with young people, um, with young people, it's also status. I mean, if you come out as not even non-binary, by the way, non-binary is the safe label these days. You know, if you don't want to come out as all the way as gay or trans, um, you're non-binary. Yeah, and that's are, it. That's probably what <laughs> they are, said. <laughs> there are schools where 50 percent of the kids are now claiming a bi- non-binary identity. And what that says really is. Uh, you're right. I, I don't want to identify, you know, if I go, if I go trans, I might have to do, you know, drugs and surgery and I don't want to do all that. But if at least I'm non-binary, I'm not a boring old heterosexual. Right. So it's, bec- it's become a matter of status. You know, when you, if you, wow. if you read the articles by, um, not detransitioners, uh, I, I read one, um, where a woman had come out as trans when she was 14 and then had detransitioned at age 19. And she says, when I came out as trans, I, I was praised. I was celebrated. I was told I was so brave. I was so authentic and everyone was so happy for me. They gave me a parade. Um, as she puts it, <laughs> the boy me was celebrated much more than the girl me ever was. But of course, when she, when she detransitioned, it was the opposite. She lost all her friends. They all attacked her. They all criticized her. They all jumped on her. And she's in this blog, she writes, if I had one piece of advice for young girls who are questioning their gender identity, it would be this. She says, if I could, if I could, and this is a direct quote, if I could convince one girl to love her body, all, all the attacks I've suffered would be worth it. And so I thought, wow, this, this came out after my book, Love Thy Body. Mm. But I thought, what a great quote for a yes. book titled Love Thy Body. If I could just get one girl to realize, no, she should love her body. And this was on a very secular, liberal website. This was not a Christian re- website at all. But it does show that even secular people are starting to recognize that at the heart of the debate, is the question of the body. Do we affirm? Do we value the body? Do we say it's good? It's good to be female. It's good to be male. And you should live in accord with your body. You should honor your body. You should respect your biological sex. When you live in harmony with your body, you will be ultimately happier and healthier. So that's the positive message that we need to get across um, in order to, you know, instead of just being negative, don't do it, it's wrong. Right. Um the message is that, well, the the core of the debate is really, is the body a product of mindless, purposeless forces, mm-hmm. in which case it has no intrinsic purpose, or is it the product of a loving creator who created you for a purpose, and therefore, 
We are meant to live in accord with who we are because we're meant to honor who God made us to be. And there are those who say that scientists are the ones who have, are best suited to answer some of the questions about the uh, purpose of nature and all that stuff. I just read uh, Eric Metaxas's book and where, in which he quotes you, as a matter of fact, and, and uh, he answers that question. I highly recommend that to people. But nevertheless, I mean, does science, uh, Christianity and scientists have more to do with each other than do the people who believe that uh, the body and humanity and nature don't have anything to do with uh, the, a creator. And so what does it say about a society What when being non-binary binary or about uh, choosing something other than what you were born with is a status symbol? What does it say about the society at large? Oh, well, I thought I think what you said earlier, the social contagion is huge right now on this issue. And by the way, the Brown University study found that as well. They found that most of these young girls were getting their idea about transgenderism from the Internet. Although I would say I've seen a change. It used to be they got it from the Internet. Now they're getting it from school. Yes. Now they're getting it from school. They're being kids taught come, that. Yes. Kids, uh, kids are coming home from school and first grade saying, in fact, I read, a, I read a um, curriculum that's being used in some places across the U.S. The curriculum says, listen to this, and this is a first grade lesson. Uh, teachers are taught to tell students just because you have some parts that some people consider boy parts. It didn't even say boy parts. It said what some people consider boy parts doesn't mean you're a boy. And just because you have parts that some people consider girl parts doesn't mean you're a girl. And, and there was actually a news article uh, from um, uh, parents whose girl came home. Their little first grader came home saying this. Um, so she must have been in one of those schools. But she came home saying, Mom, you know, my teacher says just because I have girl parts doesn't mean I'm a girl. So what am I? And she literally said to her mom, please take me to a doctor so we can find out what I am. And the reason it was in the news is because the parents were taking the, the school to court for emotional distress. But the point is that... It's, it's got, it's all the way down to first grade and kindergarten. There was a, um, article. I, I talk about how important it's, it is to know what the professional, the academics are saying. So there was an article in a professional education journal. Uh, the journal is called Curriculum Inquiry. And it was written by an educator and a drag queen. Who's, who's <laughs> name? The drag queen's name was Little Miss Hot. <laughs> The drag queen's name was Little Miss Hot Mess, Hot Mess. Mm. And this drag queen was the author of a children's book. You can look it up on Amazon. It's called The Hips of the Drag Queen Go Swish, Swish, Swish. Oh, my gosh. Um, you know, do five. Why? Do five year, Why is do this five happening? <laughs> but here's, and here's what they said. And now, first of all, they got this published in a professional education journal. Mm. And they argue that the value of drag queen in the classroom is that you're not just teaching it like a set of ideas. You're actually giving children an immersion experience in the queer world. You're teaching them queerness by, by experience and not just by, you know, not just didactically. So the point is, if this is what's getting published in education journals, it's what's, it's what's filtering down to ordinary people. 
Um, and it's what's, it's what's being taught in the education schools. It's, it's what our teachers are getting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's what they're being taught. Uh, so it's important for us to recognize that we need a multi-pronged approach. On the one hand, it's very important to challenge your school, challenge the school board, run for school board. You know, this is happening across the nation right now, and I think it's great. People, people are running for school board. Um, but we also need people who are at the academic level who are able to challenge this because as long as it's filtering down from the quote-unquote, you know, from the experts – is going to continue to have that kind of um, uh, that kind of power in terms of changing uh, changing society. Experts. Now that's a subjective term, if ever I've heard one. And I and I ask you the question because in law it's been sort of built into the laws we sort of alluded to before, and it's that the law no longer even recognizes biology, only personhood. You've made this claim in your book, and you've talked about it with me before. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think people are confused. Yes, and I like the fact that you mentioned science, and so let me tie it into that as well. Um, let's talk about homosexuality, because it's not quite as obvious. Transgenderism, it's obvious that they're rejecting the body. It's not quite as obvious with homosexuality until you think about it. Um, when I talk to my homosexual friends, you know, even they agree that on the level of biology, physiology, anatomy, uh, chromosomes, Males and females are counterparts to one another. That is how the human sexual and reproductive system is designed. And so to embrace a same-sex identity is to contradict that design. It's to say, why should my body inform my identity? Why should my biological sex as male or female have any say in my moral choices? And the the person I like to quote here is Camille Paglia. Mm. Um, I'm sure you know mm-hmm. she's a fairly well uh, well known public intellectual, lesbian feminist. And by the way, she's now come out as trans. Did you know that? No, I did not. <laughs> she, <laughs> she's been lesbian for many years, but now she she's come out as trans. Uh-huh. <laughs> but the interesting thing is, she, in one of her essays, she makes the logic really clear. She says. Okay, uh, re- the reason we know her so well is a lot of conservatives read her because she's a bit of an iconoclast. She says, uh, sex is not a social construction, as many, as many feminists say. No, no, no. Uh, ma- s- nature. This is how she puts it. Nature made us male and female. In fact, she even says we are designed, we are designed for sexual reproduction. Do you like that word designed? Interesting. <laughs> sexual reproduction. <laughs> and then she says, but you wonder, well, how does she justify then being lesbian or now trans? And here's what she says. Why not defy nature? And that's her exact word. You know, nature made us male and female, but why not defy nature? And, and here's a direct quote. Fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. So the logic there is, uh, this is go back to the science. If the science is understood to be, you know, Darwinian evolution, mm-hmm. which says we are products of mindless, purposeless forces, then there is no intrinsic purpose to our bodies that we are morally right. obligated to respect. They are, they give us no moral message. They give us no clue to our identity. Like that Princeton University professor says, the physical body tells us nothing. It is meaningless. So that's really the heart of this debate. Yeah. Do we live in a world that is created by 
meaningless, purposeless forces? Or are we the product of a loving creator who created us with a design, a plan, a purpose, an order? And when we live in harmony with that purpose, we will ultimately be healthier and happier. And this is the positive message that we want to get across to people. So that's part one with Professor Nancy Piercy. In my next episode, we talk about the stories from her book, stories from the news, gay marriage, transgenderism, all kinds of things, what they're teaching kids in schools and her findings on these issues and first principles. I know you're looking for answers. You're not the only one. So please share this podcast, subscribe to it. Give us a great review, five stars, preferably. And let's keep finding the answers together. Until next time. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Adult in the Room podcast. To keep the programs you like to listen to, please rate this podcast with a fantastic five stars on your Apple Podcast app every time you listen. And give me a great review. Plus, of course, subscribe to the podcast. It makes a difference with the big tech algorithm and the big tech oligarchs. And it makes us easier to find. Please get in touch with me on all the big tech stuff. Yeah, we're still there. Using the names Victoria Taft or the Adult in the Room podcast on MeWe, Parlor, Minds, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to 1A Cast for imaging, editing, and production. The fantastic song is Gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for Antifa versus Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by Raps by RC. The Adult in the Room podcast is also a production of Flamingo Road Studios. Remember, head up, heart out, and strive to be the adult in the room. Till next time, mischief managed. <laughs>